Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Or, or nursery. I said it wrong to Holly. I apologize to you. Uh, so we're having everybody in here today. No nursery. I think some still didn't hear me. Uh, please turn to First Peter chapter one. They'll figure it out. First Peter uh, chapter one. We're going to read verses three through five together, and then we will pray and ask for God's help. So First Peter chapter one. And we'll read three through five. So please join with me. Beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we worship you and we are filled with gratitude this morning. We thank you for Jesus's death We thank you for his life of obedience, keeping your law. We thank you for your plan of redemption and all of its mysteries. And and today's the day we remember most of all the triumph, the victory over the grave, the resurrection of Christ. We pray that you will help us to remember, to think, to reflect, and to do so with the right attitude and thoughts in our hearts, a right response to you, O God, that of humility and submission, that it would draw us to obedience and to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and follow Christ, but also to live with hope that we in Christ have the promise of eternal life in paradise. So please, we pray, awaken um, worship within us and and help us in this time. Please give us grace. Lord, I pray that you'll remove the distractions, help even the little ones to be able to to hear and and to benefit from this time. Help me to preach. Help all of us to worship as we receive your word. We pray, exalt the name of your son. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every great story is the gospel. Now, somebody really smart said that. I just don't know who it was. Uh, It came to me secondhand, but it really doesn't matter who said it exactly like that because the sentiment is an idea that Christians for centuries have seen. And what it means is that as you observe the great literature of history and the stories that have stood the test of time, the ones that have not been forgotten, the ones that have resonated for centuries. The reason why they have stuck around is because there's something compelling in the stories and what it is that is compelling 
is a shadow of the gospel. It is as though God has put a longing for the gospel in our hearts. And when we see it in the world and we hear it in a story, we find it beautiful. And what's amazing is a lot of times we don't even know we're making that connection, but we find it compelling. The, 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 the basic equation, slay the dragon, save the princess, has a shadow of the gospel in it. Jesus, the prince, has come from heaven in order to stomp the head of the serpent, that dragon of old, and by doing so, saved the princess. And as you think through the various genres of literature, we see this in every one of them. There are great epics from history. Think of the Odyssey. But the storyline of the Bible the storyline of the Bible is the greatest epic of history. And I realized I just gave you some opinion there, but to say something that's not just my opinion, it is the great storyline of history that is true and that has captured the attention and affection of billions in, in the world. It is the epic that has transpired not over the course of mere decades, but thousands of years. The God of glory created a world of glory, but an adversary corrupted that creation. But even on the day of the fall, God said that he would one day bring about the redemption and fix what was broken. But how would it happen? The storyline of the Bible is the long winding journey of the plan of God unfolding through a tumultuous history until eventually the hero, the savior, the heir to the throne came to save the world. And speaking of save the world, how many uh, famous stories of old and, and, and yes, even modern movies, but I'm trying not to just have us think of Hollywood movies. Hollywood ought to th be thought of more of as a disease than a film industry. I'm trying to get us to you know, raise our expectations and intelligence level, but think of the great, the stories of old, but yes, also plot lines of movies of how many of them is, is the story, one man must save the world. When it comes to how Jesus accomplished salvation, Think of how many of the great stories have as the, the, the great climax, the hero lays down his life, sacrifices himself for the good of others, for the good of those he loves. You know, we get misty-eyed when the valiant man stands in the gap and, and lays down his life. If, if you have never read the poem, uh, Horatius at the Bridge, do it today. Like this afternoon, fathers read it to your sons. It's an account of a time where an army was invading a village and there was only a, a, a small bridge uh, that this army was going to be able to cross and everyone's panicking and crying, but one man stands and is willing to go over to the bridge and stand in the gap so that the army faced him one by one while his village behind him escaped and destroyed the bridge. It will give you chills as he says, who will stand on my right and on my left to defend our people? Or what about that old song, Big John? <laughs> you know, we're, we're, why are we so moved by that part 
where as the mind begins to cave in and men are crying and scrambling from a would-be grave, Big John grabbed a sagging timber and gave out a groan and like a giant oak tree, he just stood there alone. Big John. I, I played that for my girls one night for bedtime story. I had to pretend I got dust in my eyes. Like, like why, why does that move us? Speaking of the hero, think of the adventure sagas and yes, even the modern action movies. You know, men in particular, why are we so drawn in? We, we are drawn to strong men of courage. Odysseus, Beowulf, Aragorn, John Wayne, Rambo, Longmire. Like, wh wh why are we so drawn to strong men who are undaunted by danger? It is because God put a longing in your heart for the Messiah of heaven. The one who would come and stand in the gap. The one who would face death and by himself, he would set his face like flint to go to the cross. He would look death in the face undaunted and die for those that he loves. The gospel is the great epic of history. It is the great adventure of history. To, to go another direction, the gospel is the great romance of history. Why is it that the great stories of romance, and, and let me really preface this one, the ones that have stood the test of time, okay, there is a lot of ignorant trash uh, that time has forgotten, and we are glad that time has forgotten some of those abhorrent stories, but the ones that have stood the test of time, why is the plot line in so many of them that there is a man who pursues a woman, but she is reluctant, and so he must work to woo her pursue her, romance her. He may even have to overcome great obstacles in order to win her affections, but eventually she sees that he is a great man and he wins her heart. Why is it that, that we, let me, let me rephrase that. Why are my wife and my four daughters' uh, affections so intoxicated by that kind of a plot line? It is because God has put the, the great romance of the cosmos into your hearts to groan for this and to see it as compelling and beautiful. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her price he died. There is no greater romance than the gospel. Look for this as you read the classics, but you know, it's not just in the classics. It's even in the, the modern day things like the Lord of the Rings and the, the Harry Potter series and such. There are these gospel overtones and sometimes Christians will, will read one of these stories and they'll think, oh, you know, th th this author must be a secret Christian. No. It's that if it's going to be great, there has to be something that makes it great. And what makes it great is, is some shadow of the gospel. It is unavoidable. God has written these things into his creation. And another of the great themes that resonates with us is the theme of redemption. The, the setting of all things right. The mending of the world. How many of the great stories of old have as their plot that there's some cataclysmic dilemma 
and the hero must find a way to fix what is broken, heal the hurting, come to the oppressed and the sick, mend the shattered hearts, bring redemption. And see, when you put it all together, all of the epic adventure, sacrifice, romance, longing for redemption, you piece it all together. We have a longing for a story that no story of the earth can satisfy. We have a longing in our souls that only the gospel itself can satisfy. See, we long for a Messiah. It's the reason why people gravitate to politicians and put their hope in them. We long for somebody who's going to set the world right. Who's going who's to finally make things work the way that they're supposed to. We, we, we long for a Messiah. We, we long for the adventure. We long for the hero who will lay down his life. But we still want the hero to get to live. So that he'll reign and put the world right. That he'll rule in, in justice and in goodness and in rightness. We want Big John to lay down his life. But we want Big John to get to live too. We want a Messiah who will die, but we also want him to live and reign. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. God put those longings into our hearts so that we would desire the gospel. So that we would desire the one who came from heaven to pursue his bride the one who came to stand in the gap and give his life, who would die for his loved ones, but then who would raise to life so that he could reign and set all things right. The resurrection is the event that shows that Jesus is this Messiah that we have been longing for and that he is not merely a hero who came in order to die. He is the hero who died in our place, but yet has conquered death and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his creation and beginning to apply the salvation that he purchased. All things will be set right. That is our hope. He has begun to do it now. He begins with the forgiveness of sins and one day will set the world entirely right. In Christ, we have hope. But this hope that we have in Christ, it's not merely hope. It is a living hope because the one who accomplished it himself lives. And this is what Peter preaches in this opening uh, section of his letter. Uh, later in the book of 1 Peter, he's got a lot more that he would say. He'll go into some big doctrinal matters and, and then get into practical instructions about how to live as a Christian. But where he begins is by calling those who are in Christ, uh, calling them to rejoice in our hope of the gospel. So let's consider what he says in this opening word. There are uh, three truths that I'm going to highlight. There's, there's a lot more that is said here if we were studying it through. But on this, this day of uh, special remembering the resurrection, I'm going to call our attention to just three truths uh, in this passage. The new birth, the hope that is alive, and then how it is through the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, let's, let's begin by looking at the, the new birth there. So if you look at verse three again, you see the language. 
He begins with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so pause there for a second. Worship and praise and exaltation to the Father. Why? Well, you, he could have given a list of a thousand different things, but here is the supreme. He continues, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. So, so pause there for us to consider just this truth. Talk about themes that find their way into stories and plots. Here's another one. The metaphor, the language of new birth is used in all kinds of stories and fables and fairy tales, but scripture is where the origin is. This is the place that all those stories got it from. But what, what does it mean? When he says he caused us to be born again, what, what does he mean? Well, before I explain what that exactly means, I, I want to I set it up a little bit to see some of the significance so, so, so look at the text again and notice there in verse four, he says that there is an inheritance that is waiting. There's an inheritance that will make th the greatest wealth of this earth to look like kids candy rations. And it is waiting in heaven for you. Who's the you? See, it's one of the principles of learning how to read the Bible is with each passage that you read, we have to learn to, to ask the question, who's the intended audience? You can't just take any passage of the Bible and apply it to you any way that you want to, nor would you, nor would you want to, okay? Some of the passages are speaking words of curse. So we, we have to, in every passage, ask the question, who is this addressing? You know, this verse does not apply to every person on the planet. All right, let, let me ask you, could Hitler have, have read this passage and taken great comfort that he had an imperishable inheritance waiting for him in heaven? Okay, no. All right, so who is it for? If it's not for everybody, then who is it for? Well, um, you may have lots of ways that you want to answer that based on what you hear in the world around you and uh, as, as Ben and I joke all the time, in country songs, okay, and, and in, the, uh, in the language that you hear, there may be lots of ways you want to answer that, but you have to answer it from the Bible. Okay, if you want to believe verse four, that's in the Bible. Okay, you have to believe what verses three and verse five are going to say about who this is for. This is one of the contradictory ways that the world oftentimes wants to come to the Bible. They want to steal the idea of heaven, but they want to reject everything the Bible says about how you get there. So who is this for? Well, let me jump to the end and show you this. Look at verse five. He says it is for you, and then he just continues, who are protected by God, watch this, through faith, through faith. So who are those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? It is those who have faith. But then to piece this together with other passages of the Bible, this is specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not enough to just in general have some uh, generic kind of belief that there is a higher power that exists. No, no, no. The Bible is very specific. It is specifically in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine son of God. And the Bible gets specific about what this faith actually is. There are lots of false kinds of faith out there. 
This isn't just a random belief in the existence of a Jesus, just that you recognize that Easter exists and that it's, it really happened in history, the resurrection. No, there is a particular kind of faith that the Bible says is the kind that you must have in order to be right with God. And that particular kind of faith is trust in Christ. It is to rely on Christ. It is to tie your rope to the anchor of Christ. And then still answering this question, the who is it for? If you back up to verse three, the you are those, he says, who have been caused to be born again. So you see the language, God caused us, Peter includes himself in that, he caused us to be born again. So there are two descriptors in the text about who this hope is for, who verse four is for. It is those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, and number two, those who have been born again. Now, I started there to make this part clear. The single greatest, and I mean it is the single greatest religious error, spiritual error that exists in our culture is the idea that I'm fine and I have heaven because I say that I am. I'm good. I'm a good person. I'll be in heaven because I'm a good person. And then what is even worse, think of the contradiction here, the illogical nature of this, okay? Even worse, I'm a good person because I, by my own judgment, say that I am a good person. Okay, this is illogical, okay? This is, this is illogical. What the Bible says here is that who is the hope for? You can't just answer it any way that you want to. You, the God of heaven has spoken from heaven to say, this is who the hope of eternal life is for. It is for those who have been born again. It is for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be born again is when God works a miracle to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. What the Bible says is that you and I are not inherently okay. We are not good enough for God. There is no amount of good works that we could ever accomplish. No way we could buy ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. We, we need grace from God to have forgiveness of sins. And he offers it not by any effort that we give, but by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. It is faith. And it is in Christ, in Christ alone. And what God says, and he says this in 20 different places. This is not just one place, 20 different places in the New Testament. Uh, he says, before you turn to Christ in this way that we are describing, we are spiritually dead. But at the moment of being awakened to believe, that awakening, this is the new birth where God brings us from death to life, spiritual death to then spiritual life. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks to those who are in Christ and says, you were, so past tense, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. He made you alive together with Christ. The new birth is a miracle and you must have this miracle. And there's, there, there's something that's kind of difficult that you need to consider here, but you do need to feel some helplessness here. It is a miracle that you do not have the power to work 
Only God can work this miracle. Look at the language of verse three. He caused us to be born again. God works the miracle you are not able to. You are helpless and dependent on God. That we're supposed to feel some of that helplessness. But the call that God gives to us is believe. Believe, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tie the rope of your life to the anchor of Christ. Rely on him. And uh, Romans chapter 10 says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This miracle will be worked at the moment of belief. So there's that first part, the new birth. We needed to make that clear. Now come to the second part, hope that is alive. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the hope itself, and then I'll get to the specific of why it is called a living hope. But keep reading in the verse there in verse three, it says he caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you come to church here, then you've heard this before, but we we always have to clarify the definition of the word hope. Um, as it is used in our modern English is different from the historic definition of the word hope and the way that it's used in the Bible. This is because we humans keep misusing words. <laughs> we need to stop that, okay? We keep misusing words and then they change over the course of time. The historic definition of the word hope and the way the Bible uses the word hope is not along the lines of how it is often said today, where somebody today might say something like, I hope inflation doesn't go any higher, okay? That would be synonymous with the word wish, okay? I wish it wouldn't happen. That's not the way that the Bible uses the word hope. The way that the Bible uses the word hope is, it is the confidence, the security, the peace, the relief that comes when you believe a promise. So. Let's say that a young boy was getting the tar beat out of him every day on his walk to school. And so one day he tells his older brother what's been going on. His older brother says, okay, tomorrow morning when you walk to school, I'm going to hide behind a tree on your path. When those guys come to beat on you, I got your back. So the next day the young boy walks to school. And sure enough, the schoolyard bullies, they come walking up. But this time... The young boy smiles. Why does he smile? He hasn't been rescued yet. He can't even see his brother yet. That's one of the points about hope, by the way. He smiles because of the confidence that he has that he believes what his brother told him. See, see, part of the whole point, though, of faith and hope is that it is not seen. Once you see it, it's no longer faith and it's no longer hope, okay? Um, Once Jesus appears in the sky in his return, it's no longer faith. It's no longer looking forward to it. It's just sight. Faith is to believe something when you cannot see it. Hope is that confidence and peace and relief that it gives you when you do believe the promise. Now listen very carefully. Faith and hope is not just imagining stuff in your wild imagination. Okay, it's not just making stuff up. If the little boy imagines that superheroes will descend out of the sky and will defend him, well, that might be faith and it might be hope, but it's not a biblical kind of faith and it's not a sound kind of hope. Okay, that's just wild imagination. Biblical faith 
is to believe what God says. We trust him that he doesn't lie and he doesn't get stuff wrong. And hope is whenever that gives us a confidence and a sense of relief because of it. You and I have been raised in a culture that adores hope. Now, you got to understand, though, that there have been other cultures uh, like the context of the New Testament, by the way, in the Greek speaking world. uh, The Stoic philosophers had influenced people to think that hope was something stupid and ignorant. Okay, so actually, uh, hope was not adored like you and I would expect it to be today. In our culture, we've been told stories from the time we were children that there is an adoration of hope. In fact, even to a delusional level. In the introduction, we talked about great stories and the way that they show the gospel. We could have a whole other conversation about songs and music. Think about how many uh, songs have as their great message, in the end, it's all going to be okay. I don't know how, and I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know everything happens for a reason. Things are bad now, but it's all going to work out. I'll be back in the high life again. I mean, the the number of the songs with that message, (laughs) I mean, that would be in the hundreds. I'm being conservative here. Like that is just preached over and over again. But, but, But listen, when our culture preaches hope, think about it. It's always a hope that is rooted in nothing. It's rooted in a feeling. It's just simply just, I like that. Therefore, I believe it to be true. Therefore, I'm going to pretend that this is how the world really is. Now, what I'm about to say here, some of these things may sound like just a rant on a soapbox. I assure you they are not. They have a point into what we are talking about here, but I want you to think about it. This is true of the unbelieving world in general, but in our culture, in this exact minute in which we live, our culture specifically is becoming absolutely delusional in the way that it determines truth, beliefs, and worldview. Our culture is moving further and further the direction of determining belief entirely based on whether it makes me feel good or not. And so if something doesn't make me feel good, then I reject it. Um, It could be, you know, categorically proven, but if I don't like it, then I reject it. So uh, one illustration, I assure you this has a point. I'm not just ranting, okay? There is a growing movement in our culture amongst some who are accusing even the medical community of what they call, quote, medical fat shaming. Have you heard of this? Okay, medical fat shaming is when a doctor says you ought to take care of yourself so that you don't develop problems uh, from from this. So that you don't develop diabetes and, and heart problems and such. But that doesn't feel good. So it must be rejected. Facts are presented. Dangers are shown. And yet this is rejected because it doesn't make me feel good. That is illogical. That is illogical and it will spell disaster. Listen to me. Truth is what is reality. Truth is not whatever you want it to be. Isn't it amazing we are having to say the sentences that are coming out of my mouth right now? You do not get to create the world in every way that you want to. 
You do not get to say that the sky is purple and the moon is made of blue cheese. You don't get to say it. This is God's creation. He made the world as he saw fit. You are living in God's world. You are God's creation. The world is as God made it to be. And he tells us how he made it. Truth is based on fact reality and the God of heaven has spoken from heaven to tell us what reality is. Okay. And and so apply all of that, that I just said, apply it to the principle of hope. And I want you to consider this. When you think about your eternity, are you confident that you have eternal life? Well, Well, let me, let me, let me try to challenge you a little bit. Let me try to poke some holes in your thinking to make sure that it's resting on something that is solid. It is not a reality that you have a safe and secure eternity simply because you want that to be the case. It is not a reality that you have a safe eternity of a hope in heaven simply because songs on the radio all talk about the fact that you do. It is not a reality that you are safe for eternity just because a whole bunch of people say that it's the case. People, people who get stuff wrong a lot. Opinion is not the basis for determining your eternity. The Christian has the hope of eternal life because there are objective facts There are historical events that took place. The divine son of God became man. He lived a sinless life. He died a death on the cross that paid for sins. He rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. He gives the promise that all who come to him for refuge will receive eternal life. Christian, our eternity, our hope, we base it not in mere opinion and something that makes me feel good. We base it in historical reality. Jesus is raised from the dead. So our hope is what verse four describes. Look at it again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you who are in Christ, I speak to you, you have an inheritance waiting. This inheritance is not fickle, temporal money. This inheritance isn't something as petty as toys and trinkets and earthly treasures It is inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it's never going to fade. It doesn't rust. It doesn't rot. Nobody can steal it. Inflation won't make it decrease in value. It's not linked to some stock market that might crash. It is kept in heaven by Jesus who doesn't lose anything or forget anything. It is kept in heaven for you. It is eternal. You who are in Christ, trusting in Christ, looking to him and not yourself, having bowed the knee to Christ, you have life, eternal life where Christ will reign and rule forever. And here's the reason why it is described as not merely hope, but a hope that is alive. It's because the one sent from God to secure your deliverance, he is alive. 
He died. He died as the Lamb of God. He died in order to take the payment of justice for sin onto himself, but he did not stay dead. He now reigns and rules seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is alive. Our hope is rooted in a person and that person is alive. So long as he lives, you live. So long as he lives, your hope lives. And so I, I, I just I appeal to you, wherever you are in your spiritual standing, wherever you are before God, hear, hear me very carefully. You are going to die. You're going to die. You are going to have to come to a real confrontation with your own mortality. You are going to die. And, and, and listen to me. COVID has a less than 1% mortality rate. I'm not going into an argument about whether it's serious or not. That's not where I'm going. I'm just stating a statistic. But you need to know that there is a disease that has a 100% mortality rate. Okay? It's called live here on this planet with a cursed body. Live here 100%. You're going to die. Logic demands if you are going to die and you have a soul that will last forever, you will exist in some state, in some place, forever and ever, either in utter misery and torment or in paradise, then you ought to do everything in your power to find out how do I get that? How do I get eternal life? How do I escape this. You ought to devote every waking moment of your existence to finding out how do I come into the kingdom of paradise? You know, if people on this earth pursue higher education, and that's a, uh, that's a great thing, people get a doctor it takes them about a decade of their life, and we count that worth it so that they can spend maybe 50 years working on this life. How much more is it worth it and necessary to devote yourself to reading, to studying, to doing whatever it would take to find out how to have eternal life? If you had to be tortured every day of your life just to find out how to have heaven, it would be worth it. But the good news is that in the scriptures, God tells us, and he tells us clearly how to have eternal life. There is something that you need. You are not inherently okay. You are not just headed for heaven because you recognize that Easter exists. You must receive something from God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him to be saved, knowing that you need to be saved from your sins and from the hell that it deserves. Call out to God in prayer. Ask him to save you. Trust in Christ. Well, here's number three, the last. We're told that this living hope is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And look at the language, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how is it that our hope is through? Um, I'll start by answering the question just by how is it that our hope is through Christ? 
and, and then I'll get to specifically what, what does the resurrection have to do with it. So first, you're already in the book of 1 Peter. If you'll maybe just flip one page and go to chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, look at verse 24. Here's what he says. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. We said earlier that our hope comes through Jesus. Why does it his work on the cross took care of the sin problem? Jesus kept the law of God perfectly, lived a sinless life in order to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He died and took the penalty for sins onto himself in those hours of darkness on the cross. So that's the first part of the answer. But now let's zoom in the lens here. What specifically does the resurrection have to do with this? Why the resurrection and not just his death? Well, Jesus' death provided the sacrifice for sins, but all of that would be pointless if God lacked the ability to then apply it to people to give life. If God did not actually have the power to bring people to life from the dead, then it wouldn't matter if God had good intentions in the death of Jesus if he wasn't actually able to raise anyone from the dead. But he is. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent meaning all powerful, okay? So he raised Jesus from the dead, demonstrating Jesus's victory over the grave and demonstrating that he is able to apply this to all. So what is the significance of the resurrection? Well, always remember this, always remember what the first answer is, okay? The first answer isn't just for our selfish reasons. The very first reason why the resurrection is significant is because of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus himself. The cross was his humiliation. In the resurrection, the father exalted him vindicated him, raised his name. Jesus has been presented as victorious, as the triumphant one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He's been presented to the angels, to the demons, to the host of heaven. He will one day be presented to all of the world. But even before that, always remember this. Every single person finds out that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is exalted. They only have to wait 100 years. Every single person becomes convinced that the gospel is true. Every single person will see the glory of Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the Father, and they will know it is true, and he is raised. But one day, God is going to reveal that in the fullest kinds of ways, when every single knee of every soul and every angel from all of history falls on our faces before the Lord Jesus. And we say the words, Jesus is Lord. But not only is his resurrection, the vindication from the father, it is, it is his defeat over death. If you think about it, if Jesus had died for atonement, but he couldn't raise from the dead, then that would mean that death was stronger than him. It would mean that he was not actually able to conquer this who is our greatest enemy, but he is. He defeated death and he demonstrated that he defeated death. And then just one more that I'll mention. His resurrection preaches our future resurrection. Jesus raised and his resurrection preaches a sermon in the act. 
It preaches the sermon of you and I who are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, we invite you to come have this hope. But if you are in Christ, it preaches that you will raise too. You will raise like him. The book of Colossians calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. Now that, that language, what, what does it mean, the firstborn from the dead? Why would he be called the firstborn if Jesus was not actually the first person to raise from dead in history? Remember, in the Old Testament, there was a young boy raised uh, to life. In Jesus's ministry, he raised the widow's son, the little girl, and then Lazarus in John 11. So why is Jesus called the firstborn then? Well, remember, all those other people who raised to life, they were raised, and that was a great miracle, that was amazing, but they were given a body just like they once had. Lazarus, the guy from John 11, it was a wonderful miracle that he raised. But you gotta understand, Lazarus eventually died again. It would be kind of tough, die twice in one existence. Lazarus died again. Jesus raised never to die again. Jesus is the first to be raised with the glorified body, the kind of body that we will all receive. You who are in Christ will receive at the coming resurrection. Jesus received a body that is untouched by death, that is incapable of dying. And those who are in Christ, we will raise with a new and glorified body, more beautiful than this one, more hair follicles than you see on this head, and one that will never die again. So for you who are confident, for you who are confident that you are born again, you have attached your rope to the anchor, you are trusting in Christ, and you know this because you're walking with Christ in obedience. You have a living hope. Let me bring just one last quick application to you. You have a living hope. There's something else Peter says about this hope. Later, even in the first chapter, he says in verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope, meaning this. We are tempted to put our hope in a thousand different things that are empty. They cannot give you real hope. And it is an idolatrous practice to give our hope to something instead of in Christ. We're tempted to put our hope in money and guns and people and politicians and insurance and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anything that makes us feel, oh, everything's okay now because I have this, that's your hope. So listen, it, it's not evil to enjoy a gift of God. It's not evil to take advantage of some benefit. You know, if insurance is a good idea, it's not evil to take advantage of that. It is evil to feel good and say, okay, now everything's okay and I can sleep. I have relief because now I have this that is there. Fix your hope completely on the Lord Jesus and the hope that is coming. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, I warn you and I plead with you. I, I warn you, God's not lying and he's not exaggerating when he says that unless you have the forgiveness of sins, unless you turn to Christ to be saved, you are going to bear the punishment for your sins. There is something that you need and so I plead with you, come and receive life.
There are over and over again in the Bible, all of these beautiful invitations that God gives. He speaks and he says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. There, there, there's a, maybe the most beautiful invitation in all the Bible comes at the very end. It's in the, some of the last verses of the entire Bible where Jesus says, you who are thirsty, come and drink. I will give you waters of life without cost, meaning you don't pay for it. He did. You don't buy it. You don't bring something to make a barter or trade with God. You got nothing. Jesus accomplished what you need. God will give it free. You have to reach out your hands and simply receive. But the way that you do that, figuratively speaking, reach out your hands to receive is by embracing the Lord Jesus. Receive him. He is Messiah the one promised from heaven. He is Lord, meaning he is the one who rules heaven and earth. He is savior, meaning you don't save yourself and nobody else does. He's the only one who can. He's prophet, meaning he's not an idiot. If he says something, it is true and you must believe that it is true. He is priest, meaning he's the only one who can bring you to God. And he is king, meaning he has the right to rule over you and to tell you what to do. You must believe in Jesus, believe he is who he says he is, embrace him in all of these roles, receive Christ, cry out to God to be saved, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'd like to talk about that with somebody, find me before you leave. There's, uh, be happy to have a conversation with you, but let's bow and pray to close. Our Father in heaven, we love you, we worship you, we thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death, and we rejoice in your resurrection. Help us as we continue on through today to remember what you have done and to rejoice, to fix our hope completely. And I pray for any in the room that has never yet been born again, please bring about this opening of the eyes. And we pray all this in your name, amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.